0: The captain has turned on the seatbelt light. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts. Thank you. 20 memorable journeys. 20 unforgettable matches. Two very different journalists. Where do their paths intersect? In the cricket press box. Welcome to Press Box 2020 with Bharat Sundaresan and Anand Vasu. Hello and welcome to PressBox 2020. This is Bharat Sundaresan, and my co-host Anand Vasu and I will get on our time machines and go around the world, revisiting matches and venues that will always remain with us in our memories because they were just special to us. And what better place to start than with the 2014-15 test in Adelaide, uh, which was an emotional affair And it's also very special to us because Adelaide has since become my home and in a way it has also become a home away from home for my co-host Anand Vasu and over to him. Hello Anand.
1: Thanks Bharat and yeah we didn't I didn't actually think that I'd live anywhere for so long. I've been here for now four months almost in Adelaide with this lockdown with the Whole coronavirus thing. And as people keep asking me, aren't you desperate to go home? Yes, of course I'm desperate to go home. I have been very keen to go back to Bangalore for the uh, best part of three months now. I was supposed to come to Australia for three weeks and instead I've been here for four months. But as I keep saying, if there's one place to be stuck, uh, Adelaide's as good a place as any. I mean, this place has uh, really grown on me and uh, it's the kind of city that's quite welcoming as well. And it helps that I have very welcoming hosts who I've imposed on for the last four months, but... Uh, and it's given birth to this podcast as well, so... Like, recently I saw somebody put out a tweet, uh, I think it was Greg Baum, the Australian journalist, saying that he was going to do a podcast on all the new podcasts that have happened during this lockdown. Well, we may as well add our uh, two cents to it. Why not? Like
0: Everybody else is doing it, so let's just jump on board. I'm sure ours will be different, you know. You couldn't find two more different characters co-hosting a podcast I would imagine and I'm also a little disappointed that you didn't bring up the hospitality at the very start of your uh, you know showcase of love for Adelaide uh, but you know Adelaide is literally where my Australian tour began back in 2014-15 um, and uh, we will get to all the like you know the drama and the whole build up to that very 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 surreal death match actually and uh, but let's start with the tour itself, like, so where, where were you when you heard of uh, Philip Hughes being hit by that bouncer and did you already know that you were coming on this tour and was your visa sorted?
1: Yes, pretty much everything was done. I knew I was going to be coming here, um, except it, when I was coming here, the first test was scheduled to be played in Brisbane. So when I left India, I was coming to Brisbane. I was on my way to, I, I don't remember the connection now, but I'd flown couple of flights. I had landed in Brisbane only to discover that the first test had been shifted to Adelaide. So my first, um, well, when Phil Hughes was hit and when he died and uh, following the aftermath of all that, I was still back in India. But by the time I landed here, it was a bit, the situation was obviously quite different. And it was the build up to his funeral and all of that. Um, So I was in Brisbane. You must have landed straight in Adelaide. Funnily enough, I did
0: not land directly in Adelaide, and one thing our listeners will realize as uh, they, you know, listen to our episodes over the next few months is that our disciplines are very different, like Anand is someone who's very, very planned, and um, all his tickets and accommodation generally are booked well in advance as compared to me, because I kind of wing it mostly, Um, and... So I landed in Sydney, and the only reason I landed in Sydney was because uh, uh, my good friend Goro Joshi, or Gav as we all know him, uh, was like is based out of Sydney, and I was also traveling with our dear friend Siddharth Monga from Crick Info, uh, and we just landed in Sydney because we just wanted to take stock of where that tour was going. We didn't know where uh, the first test would be, and we I think reached a few days before you did. Uh, which meant that we also had the opportunity to go to Maxwell Philip Hughes' hometown, and uh, I remember telling the boys that if you want to go there, it's no point going there on the day of his funeral because there'll be a lot of people there, a lot of uh, a lot of focus, a lot of cameras. So it would be it would make sense to go there two days in advance just to take in what that town was feeling really, and to to know where Philip Hughes came from, and he was the rural town hero at that point uh so you so you land here in brisbane you, you're just there and so did, did you make plans as well to to attend the funeral like
1: well or? yes um, it wasn't particularly easy because all the other indian touring party in terms of journalists and everyone else was elsewhere i seemed to be the only one in mm-hmm. brisbane at the time and there was no good reason to be in brisbane then so uh, once I once we knew where the funeral was and when it was going to be, I tried to get there. Uh, I think I was flying from Brisbane to Sydney, Sydney to Coffs Harbour and then driving from Coffs Harbour. That was the plan anyway. But uh, eventually, when I did get on the flight, there was one flight that was delayed. And by the time I got to Coffs Harbour, it was um, far too late to drive down to um, Maxwell to actually be at the funeral. So I ended up watching most of it from the airport in Coffs Harbour, um, which was an experience in itself.
0: Yeah, the funeral itself was, uh, yeah, it, it was a very emotional affair. something that I'd never experienced before, like the whole nation coming together to mourn a loss of someone so young. Uh, and, and just about that trip to Maxwell, uh, we were you know, grateful to Gav that he had a car and, yes, uh, okay. and uh, like, you know, he decided to drive us down there and uh, it, it was quite something, it was it, it just any, any, any town in Australia really, like there's a one pub, one school, uh, one hospital, one church and I remember as we drove in, there was a board which, uh, you know, which had the population of the town and it said 7,000, we all looked at each other when we read that board and said, ah, like, but you know, but they're all talking about the one who's not there. And it was quite touching. Like we went to the pub, I remember, and Philip Hughes's father was there on a table with Michael Clark and Stuart McGill. Michael Clark, of course, was going through his own issues away from, uh, like, you know, the Test Series. He had issues with Cricket Australia at that point. Obviously, everything, you know, people forgot about all that, obviously, once uh, the unfortunate Philip Hughes incident happened. And uh, it was just very strange. You could make out, I remember I was sitting there and there was a truckie or truck driver there who called me a terrorist because he'd never seen a brown person <laughs> in those parts, I guess. And uh, he was, it, it was It was just, it just told me a lot about where Philip Hughes came from, like in you know, a very little town. And you could just sense the love that everyone around around him must have had for him and of course we heard uh, that love like you know we saw that outpouring of love from Michael Clark and his family and like I said the whole of Australia I remember watching the funeral itself from the Adelaide Oval and they put it out on all the big screens and it was quite something even though you were so far away from the venue itself you felt like you were there and you know you started thinking about your own family and your brother like I've never thought of my brother the same way Uh, as I did when I heard Philip Hughes' brother talking about him. And and it's something which is very unnatural for us because I think as cricket journalists, you would agree, we're not conditioned to deal with death almost. Like the times we would have to deal with death is when we are writing an obituary about a former player, a former great. Uh, So how different was it for you, just just from a reporting sense?
1: It was very different, obviously. And uh, the thing is that we have been brought up in a cricketing sense of uh, having an impression of Australians as being these very hard-nosed, grumpy, swearing, uh, you know, men's men drinking beer all the time and being hard on the field, mental disintegration and all that later on. We never really considered that uh, Australian sportsmen could be an emotional, sensitive uh, passionate in that sense kind of lot we never had seen australian sportsmen in, in that light in a sense we were victims of our own uh, stereotypes and conditioning we just thought they would be they would behave a certain way and add to this the fact that in india um, life is valued i think considerably less than it is in other parts of the world uh, there are people dying all the time of various different things. So when one person dies, we don't react to it with perhaps the same sensitivity and the same kind of public outpouring of grief. Uh, it took some time to understand why Australia was reacting the way they were. It um, through that series, I mean, from the build up to the actual funeral to after it, uh, it did take some time for it to register why this. Young man's death uh, had affected so many people in such a personal way. It seemed like everybody had a Phil Hughes story. It seemed like everyone felt the death as though it was a death of one of their own, which was not something I was used to at all. Uh, uh, In cricket, unfortunately, we do end up writing obituaries to people who we know and people who we've interacted with a lot. So, in that sense, it wasn't uh, completely removed. Uh, Of course, it Philip Hughes was not someone who I knew personally, but we'd watched him back, we'd watched the impact he'd had. So there was a feeling that you were also part of something uh, without being quite sure why you were being so emotionally uh, affected by this event. I guess also the fact that he was only 26 when he died made a big difference to everyone.
0: Yeah, and uh, you spoke about stereotyping Australians. And I remember writing back then, uh, a piece about how Australians don't do mushy and the the contestants we see on Masterchef Australia aren't they don't really represent the real Australians or again that also came from uh, the Australia that we'd like heard about and seen on TV from a very cricketing sense like you know the whole hard-nosed attitude the take no prisoners approach to cricket and it it was interesting just speaking to the average Australian uh, during that period, like, you know, before the test began, of course, uh, there were some who felt, I remember speaking to people on uh, airplanes, who said, who felt, who didn't understand why people were making such a big deal out of Philip Hughes. I remember one guy saying, I lost two cousins in a road accident just the same day, and nobody's talking about them. And uh, you actually had to be at that funeral, or, or just wherever you were in the country, to know why people were reacting the way they were to uh, his passing. And, it was interesting because I also got to see the other side of the... Uh, I remember I was quite emotional and you start, like, you know, puts a lot of things into perspective. And on our way back from Maxwell, we stopped at a petrol station and um, Gav had, like, gone in to buy himself a coffee. or And, and I was just outside uh, waiting for him to come out. And I remember this guy walked up to me and just abused the shit out of me because Gav had left, parked his car... And left it there, (laughs) like the guy who had driven in couldn't like, you know, he basically filled fuel and just left his car there for a long time. So, yeah, I got a spray and I was like, okay, this is the Australia that I'd heard about. And it all came back in a way Uh, because the previous year we did experience the death of Nelson Mandela. And that was completely different. Like that was, again, the whole country coming together, but in a very different light. Um, And then, of course, the the lead-up to the test match itself, I think you stayed back in Brisbane. uh, uh, We flew into Adelaide, like I said, and the Australians had a practice session at Park 25, which is now Karen Rolton Oval. And the reason they did that was they almost wanted to put up a brave front, like almost tell the average Australian that, you know, yes, we feel the hurt, but Phil Hughes would have wanted us to continue on, prepare for the test series. And And it was a very public practice session. I remember they... Seemed in good spirits at the start of it. They were, like, chucking balls around and kicking a footy uh, ball around. And then you came to the nets, and then you could see how it really, like, how individually people were affected by it. I remember David Warner was batting in the net, and uh, he just wasn't himself. Like, he'd been the David Warner before, like, when they were still, like, you know, kicking the footy around. But once in the net, you could see he got really emotional. He threw his bat away. And then he completely broke down and he walked away. And then they had a team psychologist who had to sit him down and have a chat with him. And you realize that, uh, you know, yeah, this is going to be a very different test match. So, So when did you get to Adelaide then?
1: Like I certainly got there in time for the test match. I don't. I, I wasn't here for the practice session that you're talking about, and I wasn't. Uh, uh, I was there the day before the game, and in the build-up to the game, and when India started trying to shift their focus back to the cricket. Obviously, some of them had been to the funeral, Virat Kohli and uh, Donny and some of the others. Um, but one. Uh, b- I guess the time when I got to Adelaide, it was already time to switch on uh, back towards the test match and the test series. It was a very big test series for India. And uh, to be honest, they would not have been too disappointed that they were playing the first test in Adelaide rather than Brisbane. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: since we've heard so much, at least in Australia, about how India always avoid Brisbane, and uh, I don't know whether it's true or not, but... Yeah, in a way, yeah, it it, it was, I remember the pitch was called a road on day one itself. And we will come to the test match. But there was the practice game at Glenelg just a few days before that. And uh, uh, the only, like, really point of intrigue was, will we see bouncers? Because there was a lot of talk about, is this the end of short pitch? And then I remember Varun Aaron running in and, like, you know, bowling a lot of bouncers at the young Australian batsman. And Virat Kohli cheering him on from the side. It was almost like India wanted the cricket to take focus as well because it was Virat Kohli's first Test as captain because Dhoni uh, had been injured and he didn't. He I think he reached Adelaide just in time for the Test match, but he wasn't playing it. And the whole thing was about. It was a big Test series. Like you know, uh, we were still just one year out from the Tendulkar era ending. Uh, India had lost in South Africa. India had lost in England. So there was a lot of expectation from that australia tour and it was a very good australian team of course but the whole intrigue was about again like you know whether there'll be bounces or not once the test match comes around and uh, so we jumped to the test match itself uh, day one it was all david warner and it was i think by the first four overs australia were 40 without loss but before that, the morning of the test match when uh, Don Bradman's daughter came and sang the national anthem, and what do you remember from that morning?
1: I think in that morning, it was still the focus was very much on Phil Hughes. Um, there was still, it was kind of trying to say that, yes, um, this was a blow to cricket and this was a deep sorrow to cricket, but one that only cricket could itself heal. So I think a lot of the focus was on the actual restarting of playing cricket for both the teams, uh, but obviously, especially the Australian team. I mean, they were the ones who were affected the most. They were Hughes' uh, teammates, Hughes' uh, people who had played against him in interstate cricket, people who had played with him in state cricket. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anyone who was his own club mate. They were all... So, for the Australian team, I think also healing, they, they, they were... They, the only way to see whether healing would begin with cricket was to actually play cricket itself. So in the morning of the test match, the focus was still very much on Hughes. And um, again, Adelaide is the kind of city that does these kind of things, I think, that lends itself very well to these kind of things. The Adelaide Oval itself is one of the great grounds of the world. And the way that build up in the morning, there was a correct, uh, appropriate kind of mix of... Uh, Rivalries between two teams, but respect between two teams. Uh, there was a solemnity of the occasion. There was um, It was set up in a way where respect would be given to Phil Hughes. Uh, the occasion would be marked and then it would be time for play.
0: But did it feel different? Like You obviously have been doing this for such a long time. You've been to many test matches, many test match venues. It was your first time at the Adelaide Oval and I'm sure you would have heard a lot about it. Uh, as being one of the prettiest in the world, but like you know, even in terms of your reporting, and did you have to find a balance between Philip Hughes and the cricket itself? Like it, it was still a preview for a cricket Test match, a very important Test match.
1: I don't think it did. I think it did. Build-up felt different. I think the setup felt different. But once the toss happened, and once that half an hour before play began. And the actual cricket was going to start. I don't think to me it did not feel that different. You obviously were more conscious of certain things immediately after because previously you have, the kind of language you would use you would have used over bouncers, mm-hmm. over a batting innings. Uh, you were a bit more sensitive about that and a bit more careful about that. I'm sure that didn't last very long and it would have slipped back to old ways soon enough. But apart from uh, being perhaps a little more vulnerable and a little more sensitive. At the time, once play began, it was all about cricket. Once the bowler started his run-up, it was just about bat versus ball. Absolutely. And like we said, David
0: Warner made sure that the whole focus shifted to cricket uh, with his blazing start. And of course, there were so many numbers that became prominent or became important after that whole incident, which is whether it's 408, Philip Hughes' test number, or 63, or... The 64, like oh, oh there were so many numbers, and you could see that even though David Warner was being David Warner with the bat on the morning of the first test, uh, whenever he approached a milestone like that, he would look up uh, at the heavens, and again you would come back to Philip Hughes briefly, but then go back to the to cricket, and the one like the cricketing not controversy but the contentious decision around the test match was the selection of Karan Sharma, who not many expected to be on that tour. And uh, but I remember during that Glenelg, the Glenelg Test, Ravi, Ravi Shastri and uh, the director of Frick at that point, and Virat Kohli taking him aside to the nets, and uh, they, you still did not believe that Karan Sharma would play ahead of R Ashwin uh, and Ravindra Jadeja. So, uh, do, do you remember that? Like, what, what was your take on Karan Sharma making a Test debut?
1: Yeah, I certainly remember that. I think uh, I don't think anyone who saw that will forget it. Uh, Karan Sharma, God bless him, very good cricketer, uh, excellent uh, um, T20 cricketer. At that time, he had come through uh, some pretty good uh, success in the IPL and other shorter formats. But I don't think even he believed that he would be the India's sole leg spinner in an overseas test match, much less at, uh, um, on a pitch like the Adelaide Oval. Um, he'd never even bowled the 30-overs 33 overs, I think he bowled in his first innings in this test match. He had never even bowled that much for railways in a Ranji Trophy match ever in his life. He didn't turn the ball uh, a great deal. He didn't have uh, the traditional loop and guile of a leg spinner. It was quick through the air. Um, the I mean Kohli and Shastri both kept insisting that it was wrist spinners who can have an impact in Australia. Of course, uh, there is truth to that. But it's quality wrist spinners who have a, an impact in wrist spinners who try to bring together all those aspects of wrist spinners, you know, the flight, loop, dip, turn, all of those things, which is not uh, what Karan Sharma's bowling was built around. And Karan Sharma was always useful in limited overs cricket because he could bat a bit. So the whole package of Karan Sharma was uh, made him useful in limited overs cricket. But uh, number one choice spin bowler for a test match in India, I just could not believe it. Um, despite everything that Shastri and uh, Kohli and others said in uh, justification of his selection, I thought it was a blunder. I wrote it was a blunder and it turned out to be a serious blunder.
0: <laughs> to poor Karan Sharma's credit, he did dismiss David Warner, but by then the test match almost looked like it had slipped away because it was one of those days where Australia just ran away with it to the bat. And the black spinner that did shine on that day was of course Richie Benno, who we forgot to mention earlier on. Uh, with his, uh, like you know, he, he, it was it wasn't a eulogy but just him talking like about Philip Hughes and ending the segment just before the test match began with be, began with a rest in peace, son. Which I think every he, Philip Hughes was everybody's son on that day. And then we moved on to day two. Uh, also, while we were talking about Karan Sharma, the Indian fast bowlers didn't uh, cover themselves in glory either. It was extremely loose and not not a great day to be to make your test captaincy debut for Virat Kohli. And it got worse on day two when Michael Clark, again, who, like we said, there was a lot of controversy around him about whether he'll play because Cricket Australia wanted him to play the warm-up game, but he insisted on playing a club game because he was recovering from a hamstring injury. Uh, eventually, you know, he was everyone's hero, though, by the time the test match began because of his the, the beautiful way he handled the Philip Hughes family and, and the whole uh, emotion around it. And of course, he was battling through injury. And one of the few times I started a copy with just eight A's, it was a, uh, ah, because what I remember, Michael Clark shouting at the point, at one point, <laughs> that's the kind of pain he was battling through. Uh, outstanding innings. But we also saw, I think, our first glimpse of what Steve Smith would become. Like, you know, the way he treated Varun Aaron and Mohamed Shami that day was kind of a precursor to what has what was to come. So what did you think of Steve Smith Going into that, and of course the Michael Clark innings.
1: Yeah, I think Clark was the was was the big deal on that day for me, or the big memory for me, simply because of the emotion tied into it. While we tried to watch the cricket, and uh, he had his own kind of narrative and his own battle going with his injury and with the build up to the test and how close he was to Phil Hughes. I remember him. I think it was him who said in during the funeral that we must dig in and get through yeah. to tea. Yeah. And then you know we must play on. Uh, and then he he spoke about how you know in Australia the indigenous people see the land as tied to their ancestors or the ancestors as tied to the land, mm-hmm. and how the SCG would always be hallowed turf for him because of um, yeah. because Phil Hughes would always be there, and he'd kind of say, "I'll see you out in the middle." And when Clark made his runs, when he got to his milestones and things like that, looked up to the sky, and you know, you. You could sense that it meant a great deal to him, and uh, in that sense, so Clark was Clark took a lot of the focus uh, in terms of the actual run getting and the cricket. Um, but Smith, yeah, Smith was he, certainly there was the first we saw of that Steve Smith, and but not the last. It f- there was a sense and a feeling that oh my God, if we don't get this guy out, you're going to see a hell of a lot of him, which has turned out to be true. Incredibly unorthodox, but uh, India's bowling was very, very ordinary. It was a good pitch to bat on, and uh, yeah, Smith was just too good.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you speak about how uh, Clark did, like, you know, look up at the skies when he reached those milestones
1: because Australian
0: players who played that test all reacted to Philip Hughes differently. Warner was really out there. Remember that press conference? after he scored 100 when he spoke about how when he reached 63 he could see his little mate at the other end and uh you know it was uh it, it, it was not it was very different it was a diff it was a challenge reporting on it because you had to bring in the cricket as well like we said earlier uh and then uh michael clark actually wasn't as expressive as exp- people expected him to be maybe he was in pain maybe he had um he was dealing with the emotional pain in a different way. He he just, I remember, just closed his eyes when he reached his 100. You could see there were tears there. Uh, was just a, There were just a lot of tears around Australia leading up to that test and throughout that week. And interestingly, on day three, we saw Mitchell Johnson react to it very, very differently because Mitchell Johnson uh, historically has been known as a very sensitive fast bowler. He can, when he's, when he can be the raging bull, but also someone who like you know whose emotions can get the better of him and a moment which if philip hughes had like what happened to him hadn't happened would have been like the perfect start for australia in a test series when he hit virat kohli bang on the head with the first ball he bowled to him on the first ball virat kohli faced with a bouncer and historically you would have seen the australian that would have been the moment they would have all surrounded him they would have uh got really stuck into virat kohli but instead Everybody was around Mitchell Johnson, like the Australians went to him because he had his, literally he was on the floor, like you could see, he was very emotional, it was, uh, and like we said earlier, there was all this talk, will we see bouncers, will we won't, and here, the fastest Australian bowler hitting the Indian captain on the head, and it it went, and Kohli actually, like, I remember when the physio walked in, ran in, everybody, and he wanted people to like just disperse, he wanted to be left alone, that was his moment to show that it didn't affect him. And Johnson didn't bowl a bouncer to him till the end of the day. So, you know, again, like all this talk of what Australia would mean, it was our like first test match in Australia that we were covering together and also individually. Do you remember like the whole emotion around that bouncer? And like, did you also jump up on your seat? and?
1: No, not really, because there was always going to be a time when uh, the bouncers did come through. And uh, it's one thing for the players to be emotional. It's one thing to watch the emotion, but I don't think I, will, I would be... It would be dishonest for me to say I was also swept up in the emotion of it. I wasn't. Yeah, and also Kohli brushing it all off and kind of saying, you know, let's nothing's happened to me. I'm okay. Let's get on with it. That kind of set the tone for the way I watched the rest of the Test match. It was surprising that there were no more bouncers till the end of the day, which kind of played into Kohli's hands as well, given that... Uh, it was a good pitch to bat on, like we said earlier. And uh, he was batting at uh, at another level. He was batting really, really well. It uh, um, The openers, Vijay and Davan, had done their job. And then Pujara, of course, had ground things out. But it was Kohli who was going to take charge of the innings. And he batted uh, beautifully. He was uh, very, very in control of all his shots and... Uh, It was not a a question of coming out blazing, trying to make a statement in terms of being flashy or hitting as many boundaries as possible. But he was very much in control. He Mm -hmm. was very much on top of the bowling. He was not playing and missing. He wasn't uh, particularly troubled. It was a very controlled innings. And he was always going to get 100. He just looked like he was going to get 100 from when he started uh, getting going. And of course, he dominated that Indian first innings. Yeah, he did.
0: And uh, we'd seen a fine hundred from him the the previous year in Joburg. But this was as good, if not better, just because of the situation that he walked in. They had a, like They had a big score that Australia had put up in the first innings. Uh, and speaking of hundreds, David Warner produced another one on day four. And that's around the time that you, like you said, how once the cricket started, it was you would you expected things to return to normal and that's exactly what happened because we were back to sledging and like Watson and Shikhar Dhawan who had had an incident a, a year prior to uh, the test match in India uh, were at each other's throats and it all started with uh, David Warner getting clean bowled by a pumped up Varun Aaron who then like ran towards him shouting come on come on come on and so did Virat Kohli and a lot of the other Indians and then replay showed that it was a no-ball. And then we saw, I think at least for the first time in my life, I saw a batsman sledging a fast bowler, or the fastest bowler of the opposition, because after that, every ball David would want to face, even if he was just shouldering arms to them, he would look at Varun Aran and shout, come on, come on! And yeah, the fast bowler had no answer. And he I remember he smashed him for a four, a few balls later, and again, there was that, come on. And he raced away to another 100. It was a very different 100. It was... Uh, it came in like had 102 of just 166 balls. Yes, we are reading the scoreboard, and uh, but it just felt different. It felt like Australia were playing like the Australia that we'd come to know. Uh, they dominated that day, and it looked like by the end by the end of that day, India did claw back. They did take some wickets. We saw sh- the oh, Shami at that point was considered like you know now you look at mohamad shami and he's india's strike bowler uh, even especially when bumra is not playing or even when he is but back then he was the liability in you know, a way ishant sharma had become the senior uh statesman who would like hold things up and then shami and varun aaron would just like let things slip but they did bowl beautifully towards the end of that day and controlled australia to a point where um, uh, you know, Michael Clark had to produce one of his famous declarations, which even then, considering India had to chase 364, didn't seem like uh, a brave declaration because it, it looked like India would just play out for a draw. And then it all turned around on day five.
1: It certainly did. I think the way the Indian chase began, it was pretty much normal. Uh, Vijay was still batting like one of the best opening batsmen in the world that he was at the time. Uh, one end completely solid, leaving the ball really well, playing time, uh, and it did look like India was setting up uh, just to bat time. Uh, at least Vijay, the way he was doing things, was that was how it uh, went. It was Kohli who again set the agenda, and it it seemed like he was batting at a different, on a different pitch, in a different match, with a different attitude. He came out looking to take on the bowling. Initially, he too was very, very tight and very, very careful. It was not as though, again, he was it's not as though he was playing, looking at uh, runs and number of balls. It was he was just as though he was batting normally, but he was batting exceptionally well. He was in a in in that Virat Kohli zone where he was middling the ball beautifully. It was along the ground, through the covers, back past the bowler, mid on, mid off, playing in those like really solid traditional test match areas, and he was doing really well. Uh, the way he, again, put uh, pushed things back, put the pressure on uh, the Australian bowlers, scoring quickly, where none of the other batsmen really managed to do that. Davan didn't make too many. Pujara hung in there and tried to do his usual thing. And it was Vijay who kept one end up. But while Vijay was keeping his end up, it was Kohli who was moving the test match forward.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, it was a period of time when Mulli Vijay was considered the best opener in the world, just the most dependable opener in the world anyway. He would, like, show leave balls better than anyone else and he would then go on to score a very good 100 in Brisbane a few days after that. But yeah, his 99 really set up that test match in a way and going into the tea break, India was suddenly in front. Like, there was suddenly talk of India maybe pulling it off. And if not... Actually, it was Australia suddenly who had been pushed into the background. It was a. It looked like a Nagpur test pitch. Like on day five, it was spinning and it was bouncing. And Nathan Lyon at that point had never won a test match for Australia on day five. He'd never taken a five-wicket haul in the fourth innings. And there was talk before that series whether he will even play. They were already looking at Options, but Michael Clark showed how brilliant a captain he was, especially at using spinners and especially using Nathan Lyon. And it all turned after tea. Vijay gets out, and then bang, bang, Rahane and Rohit Sharma. And Rahane, there was controversy. Then, late replay showed that uh, he hadn't gone Glau or Bat, but he was given out. And then out walked Ridiman Saha, whose brief, like very brief innings, kind of told you this was a new India, in, in a way, at least a Indian test team which is going to approach playing test cricket overseas very differently. I mean, of course, Dhoni would come back for the second test and we would slightly go back to more def, uh, a defensive approach. But Saha came out and I remember my intro for that piece was Saha 6, Saha 4, Saha out. because And even Kohli looked surprised in a way at how Saha went after Nathan Lyon in that over. And he did not look too dejected when Saha eventually got out.
1: Yeah, at that time, I was uh, just next to the press box at the Adelaide Oval where the commentary boxes were. And Rahul Dravid was doing some work for, I think, one of the radio channels or one of the television stations. And at at that time, he was not on air. So he was sitting with a cup of coffee and chatting and watching. And he was counting down the number of balls. He was kind of saying, you know, 60 left to go, 59 to go. Ah, another one blocked. Like, we can do this. We can save this kind of thing. And instead, this, the, the Indian batsmen were going hammer and tongs at uh, the bowling. Saha is the kind of guy who can bat. He's got hundreds in different forms of cricket before. Um, it was not as though he was uh, number 10 or number 11. So the only way he knew to play was to you know, go hard at the ball. And yet, it, like you said, 6-4 and out. And it showed that... There was a concerted effort from the dressing room. There was a message. There was a thing that, you know, we are going for this no matter what. You know, in the case of Virat Kohli, who had gotten out, he had hit a six and then he was going for it. The shot was on and Kohli was obviously a different batsman and batting at a different level. So, there was no reason why he would not go for it. But to see Saha play like that, was extremely surprising. And I know you want to play adventurous cricket and bright cricket. And and later, it would be said that India, this was a brave new India who would rather lose trying to win. But at the time, it made very, very little sense, especially given that Kohli was... um, You know, just the stand-in captain at the time. And Dravid couldn't understand any of it either. He he said, look, of course you want to win a test match. You always want to win a game. But if you can't win a game, then you do draw the game. And being the first test of a series, with everything to play for after, if you're a stand-in captain, the last thing you want to do is be adventurous and uh, hand the series back to the regular captain, 0-1 down, when it could just as easily have been 0-0.
0: Yeah, I remember watching the last three wickets fall with Rahul Dravid. I think he was doing work for Star Sports, and he was in one of the commentary boxes. And yeah, by then he he had kind of lost hope. But that Virat Kohli wicket was quite something, quite dramatic, as dramatic as everything else in the Test match. Nathan Lyon, uh, you know, bowling into the rough, and Virat Kohli trying to clear deep mid wicket, and Mitchell Marsh just about hanging on. And you could see all that Australia's hopes, at least, it looked like rested on Mitchell Marsh's big hands just somehow clasping that ball and if he had let that go it looked like it was Kohli versus Australia at that point but maybe it, it, it was a stretch because I remember like you said Rahul Rawat was quite surprised with India's approach he'd been a captain himself uh for a long time and yeah by the time the tail off like the last two wickets fell after Kohli uh, I remember telling him like maybe th- now they will shut shop and he's like he I remember him telling me that no, 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 the shop was shut a long time go This test match is gone, and yeah, and then just just the celebration. Like, of course, Australia when they win a test match, they like to like sing under the southern cross inside the dressing room. It's their own private celebration. But on this occasion, late much later in the night, I don't know whether you were still around. They all came back and. Um, I think it was 4-0-8, like, you know, it was imprinted on one end, just outside the dressing room, they all, like, stood around it and sang sub- under the Southern Cross, and you could see the emotion, emotion just fl- flowing, and then it was a great test match, a great test match win for them, but at the end of the day, after the deed was done, it was all about Philip Hughes again.
1: It certainly was for Australia, it was, uh, but I think also it was a significant moment for Indian cricket, uh, especially looking at it in retrospect. At the time, we could not understand, you know, the, ma- the stand-in captain and the tactics and things like that. But looking back, it does look like uh, Kohli was laying down a marker of sorts. I don't, I, I wouldn't say that he was trying to, you know, claim the captaincy for himself, but he was certainly saying, I'm ready. He was saying it in a deed rather than an action. The manner in which, the you know, the, starting with the team selection, picking Karan Sharma over Ashwin and trying to have that attacking kind of mindset and attacking intent that they spoke about uh, much uh, in the months to come. From that to how, um, you know, going for a win even if you were going to lose the test match, not quite risking a loss to ensure that you win, but saying, I'd rather lose than play a boring draw, which was, I mean, it's it's an interesting way to play the game, and it's certainly one way to do it when you're an individual. But to see a captain taking that approach with the whole team was very, very unusual. And Dhoni always suffered the criticism that he was a defensive captain. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I think he did... Um, He was a realistic assessor of the resources he had at hand. Uh, Virat Kohli's had this brand of captaincy where he's very aggressive subsequently, but he's also had four fast bowlers, which Dhoni never had. Um, And so I think in a way, Kohli was laying down the marker in that test match saying, look at me, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm there to take over. And um, it would have been even more dramatic if India had won the test match. But even in that loss, the twin hundreds of Kohli, the the aggression, the blaze of glory in which India went down, it certainly was a different look than we were used to from Indian cricket.
0: Absolutely. And I, it was more people attended uh, that day's play than uh, they ever had in the history of Test cricket in Australia. I mean, at the Adelaide Oval, that is. Uh, and we will briefly touch upon the Adelaide Oval. But before that, yeah, I think it was also when Australia as a country, started looking at Kohli differently because Kohli, uh, they had a, an interesting relationship leading up to that test match, but just the way he approached that run chase, it was a very Australian way of doing it, and um, I think they kind of kind of fell in love with him, in a way, and uh, ever since, it's all about without Kohli in Australia, even in 2020 as we recover from the virus, and um, hopefully we will get to see him again in, <laughs> in Adelaide, and hope to see you again in Adelaide if you ever leave, Anand Vasu. And, like, like, you know, it was also your first proper visit to Adelaide back in 2014. What else comes to mind? Like, you speak about, this is, the podcast is called Press Box 2020. Anything about the Press Box that stood out for you?
1: Well, I think certainly, yeah. I mean, we'd heard so much about the Adelaide Oval and we'd also read so much about Adelaide as a city. But a lot of it was in terms of cliches, like you always hear Adelaide, city of churches... Yeah we've written that lazy line a thousand times and it is a city of churches in a way in that you walk around any neighborhood and you will see a lot of churches but it's not as though they're all the same i mean you could be at one street you'll have a greek orthodox church and the next street you'll have a, a a very traditional you know british architecture kind of church and you all i knew of adelaide during that test match was the Rowdy, excitable, um, kind of Hindley Street quarter uh, where all the action is and, you know, in terms of the evenings out and the boisterousness and things like that. And then the Adelaide Oval, um, War Memorial Drive leading up to it, the church right next to the cricket ground where Vijay Hazare went and prayed before his test match many years ago, which I went to look at and, you know, to write about because Hazare had scored twin hundreds in the Test match, and then Kohli scored twin hundreds in this game. Um, so the Adelaide, the, I did not know anything of Adelaide then, apart from what I had read and what I would heard, and um, so I went in with those kind of impressions. This was, that was, but during that Test match, with all that was happening, there was a chance to kind of walk around a little bit, just allow a little bit of the city to kind of seep into me, rather than the other way around. And to realize that there is life uh, beyond the Adelaide Oval, Hindley Street, and where we were staying. It was a kind of a little quarter, very much in the CBD of Adelaide. And the CBD of Adelaide is, I think, about the size of Eden Gardens or one of those stadiums. It's not very big. But it was was the first time I actually got a chance to uh, immerse myself in the city a little bit. And uh, of course, ever since, it's become my favorite city in Australia maybe in the world but yeah you you brought
0: up hindley street
1: and that was we were staying
0: in a hotel right on hindley street and yeah we we would hear noises and sounds through the night uh and it, it was the first thing that that's that was the only thing i really knew, knew of adelaide even when i suggested that isha my wife should move to Adelaide or pick a university in Adelaide. Because I did remember I do remember doing a story on Rick Darling, a former Australian opener who had been hit on the head three times and luckily survived and he wasn't doing too well, I remember. And we had to go to a very small suburb and I can't even tell you where because I who who'd have who'd have thunk it <laughs> that Adelaide would be home someday. So but to go to like the suburban part of Adelaide and it was so leafy and Beautiful, like you know, the, how everything seemed so calm, and I thought, I I do remember thinking, wow, imagine if this could be home one day, and well, it, it has happened. But uh, yeah, Hindley Street was quite something, and it's funny, funny that ever since I have moved to Adelaide, I've never been to Hindley Street really on a busy Friday night, which back then seems like such an exciting, <laughs> exciting prospect. And we did go there pretty much every night. We just, yeah. just finally any other side lights from. That week, did you? What was the? What was the best pub you went to? Of course, you don't go to pubs anymore, Anand Vasu. That will be, be discussed in detail in following episodes. But uh, anything that stands out?
1: Yeah, I think it was uh, with some of the Australian journalists that uh, it was all not far from Hindley Street or on Hindley Street uh the hostel, mm. where i was told that there's uh, enough beers to go different beers to keep me going for like five or six days without ever having to repeat a beer and that was true and it was a really nice atmosphere there were a lot of cricket people there um there was another pub not far from there i think it was the exeter yeah. uh which is another one that we spent a bit of time a little quieter than the hostel, which i think was more music and um mm-hmm. uh, yeah so i think those were the two pubs that we spent the most time at and uh on that trip yeah
0: the Exeter according to our dear friend Peter Lawler the best pub in all of Australia and when he says it you have to agree with it and uh, yeah that brings us pretty much to the end of our first ever episode of Press Box 2020 where we've covered a very very special test match. Uh, in my opinion the most dramatic and uh, the most special test match I've ever covered where does it rank in your top three
1: I don't have a top three and I can't honestly remember every test match that I cover. Even for this one, I had to go back and uh, kind of research where I was, what I felt like, uh, what what was happening at uh, each different day. Um, but yes, simply because it was Adelaide, simply because it was the Phil Hughes test match, this is one that you're going to remember. I don't think uh, in terms of the actual cricket, uh, it, it, it's going to rank high, low or otherwise for me. But simply because it was the Phil Hughes test match and it was Adelaide, uh, it's always going to be a memorable and special test match.
0: Absolutely. And uh, like for me as well, Like I think it, in a very strange way, it taught me how to moan. And a few months after that, my dad passed away and it was obviously in very different circumstances. But I think being here and seeing a whole country rally behind someone... So young who had, uh, like like I said, he was everybody's son for a few days. And it, it kind of taught me how to moan. And like you said, at the very start of this episode, we're so used to dealing with death back home that you don't really value life when someone passes away. And I think that uh, was one of the biggest takeaways for me. And uh, we will be revisiting many more dramatic and many more memorable test matches and T20Is and ODIs in the weeks and months to come. So... Thank you for joining me, my co-host Anand Vasu. And I'll see you next time.
1: Thanks, Bharat. And uh, we'll go from Adelaide. Uh, Where do we go next? I don't, I'm not sure where we should go. Maybe we should go to the Eden Gardens and get back to India to kind of switch gears completely. Switch from the test match to a completely different thing. Maybe the T20 World Cup, was it? Uh, Was it the final of the T20 World Cup that we watched? West Indies, your favorite team beating England? Was that the one? I think we should go to that game next.
0: (laughs) And I thought you were suggesting Calcutta just because that's where my wife comes from. But yeah, of course, that's where West Indies famously won their second World T20 title. But for now, it's goodbye from Adelaide and thank you for listening. So find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts from. Hit download and don't forget to give us a 5-star rating if you think we've earned it. Also, follow us on Twitter at PressBox2020, that's PressBox, twenty 2 and on Instagram at PressBox2020.